go ahead and take out your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I've entitled our message this morning, uh, Running Down a Dream, which is uh, the title to a famous Tom Petty song. And uh, in that particular song, uh, Tom Petty, or whatever he's singing about, is chasing down his dreams of the future. Uh, the, the dream he's chasing down is the dream of what he can become and uh, of what's ahead for him in his life. In our passage this morning, however, Daniel is running after a very different kind of dream. And his life as well as the life of his friends and the lives of many others depend on whether or not he can chase down this dream and what it means. This is an exciting passage of Scripture. Daniel chapter 2 is dramatic, but there are some very important lessons for us here as well. And so I want us to dive right in. This is the Word of God. We're going to begin reading verse 1, Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to read through verse 11. So Daniel 2, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So in these verses, we see Nebuchadnezzar's predicament. He's having dreams. And these aren't 
typical dreams. Uh, he appears to be having the same dream over and over and over again. And this dream has gripped his consciousness. This dream is troubling him. He needs to know what it means. In the ancient world, it was often assumed that the gods would speak to people in strange and fantastic ways. So if an animal was born with some kind of strange deformity, it was considered an omen, a message from the gods. A multi-headed ox born in a farmer's field would be brought to the kingdom's wise men so that those wise men could determine what the gods were saying by this anomaly. Uh, many wise men specialized in astrology, uh, studying the movements of stars and scanning the skies for unusual signs. And from these, they would deliver messages to kings from the gods. And then there were dreams. And especially vivid, repeated dreams. These were widely thought to be messages from the divine. And there were men who spent their whole lives mastering the art of understanding dreams. So Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that the gods are telling him something and he fears what it might be. And so he gathers his wise men to help him understand. And his wise men are given to us in the text by their specialty. So some are magicians. Others are enchanters, others are sorcerers, and still others are called Chaldeans. Um, the magicians were those men especially trained in the magic arts, uh, much like those men in Egypt who turned their staffs into serpents before Pharaoh and Moses. And there is some evidence that these magicians were the best trained in the field of dream interpretation. The enchanters were more like ancient doctors. Uh, they were skilled at reading the signs of what was wrong with folks and then prescribing certain concoctions and even rituals to get rid of a sickness. They also likely had some skill in casting spells. The sorcerers specialized in spells, and they were also skilled in charms and in incantations. And then finally, the word Chaldeans is likely a catch-all phrase, meaning and all sorts of wise men. Uh, in fact, the Babylonian people as a whole were often called Chaldeans, in part because of their attraction to supernatural practices. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar with his predicament, this dream that must be understood, and he's called the best that Babylon has to offer. What does the Bible say about all of this? Three key points to make. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, the first, God forbids his children from participating in sorcery, witchcraft, and other dark arts. So let's just be clear about that. As we read about sorcery and enchanters and these things in the Bible, we shouldn't come away going, oh, that sounds fun. Why don't I try that? No, the Bible is, is very clear in how we are to think about this. Exodus twenty-two eighteen. God's law declares, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Leviticus 19.31, God told ancient Israel, do not turn to mediums, 
or necromancers, do not seek them out, and do not make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. In the New Testament, in Galatians 5.20, sorcery is listed right alongside a whole list of the works of the flesh that Christians are to put away from themselves. Uh, Those who walk in the Spirit of God, according to Galatians 5, do not participate in such things. Second, the Bible teaches that it is not only wicked, but that it is also foolish to turn to dark practices for answers. It's not just wicked, it's foolish. And why is it foolish? It's foolish because we have God to turn to. Uh, Isaiah 8 verse 19 says this, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? In other words, we are to go to God in prayer. We are to go to the Scriptures, God's Word, for guidance and direction. We are foolish to look elsewhere when we ought to be and can be looking to the one who knows all things. And then third, as we pointed out before in our studies of the Old Testament, uh, involvement in dark practices is involvement with demons. Involvement in dark practices is involvement with with demons. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't claim that Nebuchadnezzar's wise men were all frauds. Uh, these Chaldeans are not presented to us as tricksters. Now, certainly some of them might have been tricksters, but the scripture seems to indicate that there really were people, at least in ancient times and probably still in modern times, who could perform supernatural feats using the dark arts. How did this happen? Well, in the case of Babylon, it was through the false gods that these men represented, that these men served and worshipped. It is true that the Babylonian gods of Marduk and Ishtar, that these were false gods with no power at all. They didn't really exist. But we also have to remember that the worship of pagan gods in the Old Testament was, in fact, the worship of demons. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 16-17 makes this connection for us. And so talking about Israel's idolatry, talking about Israel's worship of false gods, Moses says this, They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so Moses connects for us that to sacrifice to these strange pagan gods was in fact to sacrifice to demons, which are very real. And so it is likely through demonic power that these men performed their feats. Uh, We must not forget that Satan and his demons are real and that they do have great powers. We remember how Satan had the power to transport himself and Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Or how Satan caused the kingdoms of the world to pass before the eyes of Jesus. Deuteronomy 13 warns of the prophets who will come in the name of God performing signs and wonders, and yet they will be false prophets. 2 Thessalonians talks about the lawless one, 
the Antichrist who comes, quote, by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And so as we read through this book of Daniel and its Babylonian context, I just need to ask you, Mount Hermon, have you come to terms with this reality? With all of our sophistication, with all of our advancement in knowledge, with all of our great technology, are we still willing to acknowledge what is the plain teaching of the Bible? Namely, that there are real, supernatural, demonic forces at work in our world today. If you're not aware of this, you're exactly where the devil wants you to be. If you're suspicious of the Bible's teaching on this subject, if you feel that talk of angels and demons is ignorant and primitive and not in keeping with our modern times, then you have fallen prey to the devil's very scheme. As it's been said by many, the most genius thing the devil ever did was convince folks that he didn't exist. Indeed, the devil would have us believe that nothing spiritual exists. Him, demons, angels, God, our very souls. The devil would like us to be blind to all of those realities. And yet the Bible calls us, friends, to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are warned not to be ignorant of his schemes. So we need to embrace this reality and understand it. Now, back to our account. So here's here's Nebuchadnezzar. Here are the best that Nebuchadnezzar has. And these men knew how to do their work. Uh, When the king needed a word from the gods, they would work together to bring the king that word. So some of them would be looking at the stars. Others would cut open animals and actually study their entrails. That was a fine art in that day, learning how to interpret signs from the gods by studying the entrails of animals. Others would watch animals, the behavior of animals, and draw signs from there. Others would pour oil into water and then watch the shapes that would form and draw messages from God, from the gods from the oil mixed with water. Others would create smoke with a sensor and then watch the shape of the smoke and draw a message from God from there. And then all of these men as a team would come together, reach a conclusion, and present their word from the gods to the king. And you know why they worked as a team. Because then it wasn't one person's neck on the line, right? It was security that caused them to work as a team to present these things. So that's what makes this passage so hard for them. They were given an impossible request. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need a word from the gods. He's already received it. He wants to know what it means. And that would be easy enough if he would just tell them what the dream was. Because there was well-established dream lore at this time that they could turn to in order to give Nebuchadnezzar some plausible explanation for his dream. But Nebuchadnezzar knew how easy it was for them to come up with some plausible explanation. And what he wanted was the truth. 
and therefore to ensure that he was getting the true interpretation, he first demanded that these men tell him his own dream. Some old commentators thought that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his dream. I don't think so. I think Nebuchadnezzar knew very clearly what he had dreamed, what he had dreamed because he kept dreaming it. The plural was used. He keeps having this dream. He wants them to tell him the dream so that he can trust their interpretation. Uh, perhaps you've heard of the fellow who called up the psychic hotline. And before they would give him his psychic reading, they asked for his credit card number. And he simply said, if you're psychic, don't you already know it? You tell me my credit card number. Well, in a sense, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here in this passage. Now, the key verses of this whole section are verses 10 and 11. So look at those again. Verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So what are these opening verses about in chapter 2? They are about the limitations of men. No matter how skilled people are, even in the darkest arts, there are simply things that men cannot do. The stars, entrails, oil and water, these things are not going to help. And now with their necks on the line, these men find themselves helpless and hopeless. Uh, Mount Hermon, there are times in our lives where we find ourselves in exactly the same situation. No matter how much we might want to solve a problem, there is simply nothing we can do about it. Sometimes we see brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting, and we would do anything. We would give our very lives to help them, but we just don't have the answers for them. We don't have the means to give them what they need. Sometimes there's just nothing we can do. Sometimes we see this with people that we love where the issue is their very lives. Maybe they have an incurable disease. And all we can do is weep with them. Maybe it's a wrong that has been done to us or wrongs that we've done to others with consequences that cannot be undone. And until we acknowledge that we are helpless, we will find ourselves very anxious and defeated and discouraged and depressed. But often it's when we come to that place where we come to God and just acknowledge there is nothing I can do here. That's the time He meets with us. And He often does glorious things. Sometimes He removes the trial. Sometimes He changes us in the trial. Well, let's see what happens here. Verse 12, beginning in verse 12. Let's see what happens Because of this, because of the wise men saying, we can't help you, king. The king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. 
And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So in these verses here, we are reminded that Daniel and his friends are included among the wise men of Babylon. This was the kind of education that they had been given at the command of Nebuchadnezzar. The kind of education that trained up enchanters and sorcerers. Uh, frankly, the education of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego was likely much more like something Harry Potter experienced at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry than it is like anything you and I experienced in the schools that we attended. Now, we assume that as faithful followers of God, they received this education differently viewing what they were learning differently than the Babylonians who truly put their faith in these things. And I think it is very telling that Daniel and his friends are not included among the court astrologers and sorcerers and others who first speak with Nebuchadnezzar after his dream. Uh, I think we can be certain that Daniel and his friends preferred other specialties than these. Uh, these were God-honoring men, and they knew what their law said about sorcery. By the way, just to help you picture what's going on here, Daniel and his friends are now in their mid to upper teens. Okay, so somewhere between 15 and 20 is how old they now are. They are brand new graduates of Nebuchadnezzar School. If you'll remember, the first chapter of Daniel ended with their season of education coming to an end and them being tested before the king. And we were told at the end of Daniel 1, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. That verse alone tells us that they were trained in the ways of the Babylonian wise men, and yet they were different from the magicians and the enchanters of Babylon. Uh, they are not included in those groups. Their wisdom, their understanding, their ability to give counsel to the king seemed to come from somewhere else. God, and not wicked practices. Now we're told that this happened in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And yet, if you remember, Judah was sieged, and these exiles were taken before Nebuchadnezzar actually went to the throne he became king later that year, and according to Babylonian accounting, it was the next year that became the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So Daniel and his friends graduated from a three-year school in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And that's where we are. They've only just graduated. They've only just come out from under that education. And so if you wonder, why did Nebuchadnezzar grant Daniel his request? to stop the killing of the wise men, and to give Daniel time to find an answer. Well, it was because just a matter of weeks or even months ago, he had been so impressed by Daniel and his friends and the way they had performed in their assessment. And so for Daniel's sake, Nebuchadnezzar holds off on his decree, but for only a short time. And now all eyes are on Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is expecting an answer from Daniel, and it needs to come fast because lives are on the line. Let's see what happens. Beginning in verse 17, 
the fate of many on his shoulders, what will Daniel do? Here is what Daniel does. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house. Okay. And he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. We remember them by their Babylonian given names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So with lives on the line, with an incredible burden upon him, Daniel turns to prayer. And he didn't just turn to his own prayers, he goes to other faithful men in his life, his friends in the faith, his brothers in the faith, and he asks them to pray. They all appear to be staying in the same house, right? He told he goes to his house and talks to these guys. So these are their bunkmates, okay? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, they're all bunkmates here. And you can imagine them kneeling together, crying out to God together. Not only for their own sakes, but for the sakes of these pagan wise men. And in particular, these, these teenage boys are praying together for God to do what only God could do. God, will you reveal the dream that this king had? Will you help us to understand what he saw and what it meant? And God did. He heard and he answered the prayers of these young men. Mount Hermon, have we forgotten the power of prayer? Because even now there are many in our church family who are facing almost impossible situations. We have some in this room dealing with hurt and pain and confusion. There are obstacles in dealing with lost loved ones and broken relationships. Some of you in here may be floundering in the midst of financial trouble. Others may be dealing with an inward depression and an inward darkness or sadness that other people in this room don't even know that's happening in your life. And it just won't go away. It just won't lift. The cloud won't lift for you. And we are so quick to run into despair We are so quick to throw in the towel and to act in ungodly ways. The stakes in Babylon were high, but this circumstance was not too big for God. Indeed, God often sets up really tough circumstances for His people so that He can reveal His glory as He answers in power the prayers of His people. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord would would deliver us from everyone. But we must pray. God answers, but we must pray. Are we praying, church? I know we're talking with one another about what's happening in so-and-so's lives and how tough it is and almost complaining to each other about it. It seems like so much is going on around us is hurting and broken. It's great. Are we praying? Are we going to God for one another, interceding for one another? 
Hudson Taylor, 1832-1905. He was on his first journey to China as a missionary when the ship he was traveling on came into what's called the doldrums. Everybody say doldrums. Uh, this is a situation that happens a lot when sailing near the equator where basically there's a little breeze at night that will move the ship a little bit. But during the day, there's no wind at all, and often the ship ends up just slowly going back to where it was. And a ship caught in the doldrums can be trapped there for weeks or even months, and it can often spell death for people who are on that ship. It's a very dangerous predicament to be stuck in. In Taylor's case, their ship had gotten stuck in the doldrums. Hudson says, we were in a dangerous proximity to the north of New Guinea. And Saturday night had brought us to a point some 30 miles off land. And during the Sunday morning service, which was held on deck, I could not fail to see that the captain looked very troubled. Uh, he frequently went over to the side of the ship. And so when the service was ended, I learned from him the cause of a vain current was carrying us towards some sunken reefs, and we were already so near that it seemed improbable that we should get through the afternoon in safety. After dinner, the longboat was put out, and all hands endeavored without success to turn the ship's head from the shore. And after standing there together on the deck for some time in silence, the captain said to me, well, we've done everything that can be done. We can only await the result. A thought occurred to me, and I replied, No, there is one thing we've not done yet. What's that? He queried. Well, four of us on board this ship are Christians. Let us each retire to his own cabin, and in agreed prayer, let us ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. He can easily send it now, as it's sunset. The captain complied because he was one of the four Christians with this proposal. Uh, Taylor says, I went and spoke to the other two men, and after prayer with the carpenter, the Lord Jesus, we all four retired and we waited upon God. I had a good but very brief season in prayer, and then felt so satisfied that our request was granted that I could not continue asking. And very soon... Went back up on deck. The first officer, a godless man, was in charge. I went over and I asked him to let down the corners of the mainsail, which had been drawn up in order to lessen the useless flapping of the sail against the rigging. What would be the good of that? He answered roughly. Well, I told him we had been asking God for a wind and that it was coming immediately, and we were so near the reef by this time there was not a minute to lose. With cursing and a look of contempt, he said he would rather see a wind than hear of it. But while he was speaking, I watched his eye, following it, up, following it up to the royal, and there, sure enough, the corner of the topmost sail began to tremble in the breeze. Don't you see the wind is coming? I exclaimed. Look at the royal. No, it's only a cat's paw, he rejoined. It's a mere puff of wind. Cat's paw or not, I cried. Pray, let down the mainsail and give us the benefit. And this he was not slow to do. 
And in another minute, the heavy tread of the men on deck brought up the captain from his cabin to see what was the matter, and the breeze had indeed come. And in a few minutes, we were plowing our way at six or seven knots an hour through the water. And though the wind was sometimes unsteady, we did not altogether lose it again until after passing the Palau Islands. Listen to what he says here. Thus, God encouraged me before ever landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he will honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help that each emergency required. Friends, have we learned that lesson? Have we learned to bring every variety of need to Christ in prayer? Have we learned to expect that for the sake of the honor of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father will bring the help we need in each moment? God will honor His promises. What is going on in your life right now that you think is is too big for the hands of God? No matter how large the difficulty may be, I promise you it is a speck of dust compared to the Almighty One. Your God has a strong right arm and His commitment is to you and your eternal welfare. You are His child. He is your Father. Take your every need to God in prayer. We, we go everywhere else. We, we go to one another in gossiping. We go to social media and vent there. We, we turn to excessive sleeping or abuse of alcohol or Netflix binging. We, we, we turn everywhere and anywhere except to the place that is the most obvious. The place from which our help comes. Don't turn in on yourself. Don't start shutting out friends in your life. Don't start separating yourself from church because of what's happening. Rather, hear the command of God. Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And follow Daniel's example. Don't just pray alone. Get some godly people around you and pray together. Agree in prayer and see what God will do. We'll just close by looking at verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. How does Daniel respond to God's mercy? How does Daniel respond to God revealing to him the answer that would save so many lives? Daniel blesses 
God. Daniel praises God. And the point of his praise is this. It is his God who is the true God and who can bring true help. Wisdom and might do not belong to the false gods of Babylon. Wisdom and might belong to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Uh, We know from the New Testament that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God in whom there is all wisdom and might. It is Christ who can give us the help and the answers we need as we pray to Him. It is Christ who is powerful to save you from hell and from hellish situations. So don't depend on yourself. Renounce ungodly ways and turn to Christ in trusting prayer. Trust Him above all else, for He is faithful. Amen? Amen. We'll see the rest of the story, as I used to say, next time. Let's pray.